Um, so we're getting ready to dive into the book of Acts, and I'm excited to jump into that book. We, we studied the Gospel of Matthew for a couple years, and we wrapped that up, and then we took a little bit of a break, and we looked at who is Jesus, and then who are we as God's creation, and now we're going to dive into the, the story of the church, the story of us, our history, um, and I'm really excited for that. It opens with a message from Jesus, intros the disciples, and it highlights the ministry of this guy named Peter, right? Now, Peter, Peter's a brick. Um, I love Peter. Actually, I probably shouldn't use the word brick because Jesus didn't call him a brick. He called him a what? A rock, as a matter of fact, right? He's the one that's going to help build the church. And all throughout the book of Acts, you're going to have lessons and, and teachings from Peter, and Jesus said this about him in Matthew 16, verses 17 through 19. When they asked, who, who do people say that I am? Jesus said, and then who do you say that I am? Jesus said, you are the Messiah. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, but on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. That's quite a statement. Could you imagine Jesus looking you in the eyes and going, listen, I'm going to change your name, Simon. I'm going to change your name to Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I'm going to build, I'm going to build the church on you, Peter. Now, if you were Peter, how would you feel? Intimidated, right? Intimidated is a good answer. Well, how else would you feel? I mean, that's pretty cool, right? There's 12 other disciples around. There's masses around. Jesus looks at all the other disciples. He comes around to Peter and he goes, Peter, you? You're the guy that I'm going to use to build the church. It's a pretty amazing statement. And Peter is such a powerful personality. And he's the pillar of the church. Uh, much of what you and I experience in our modern day church is because of the ministry of Peter. He's a pretty significant guy. However, if you were with us for our study in Matthew, you would not only have read those words about Peter being a rock, but you also heard Peter, Jesus say some other words to Peter that weren't so comforting. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he was being arrested, going to be arrested, and then put on trial, and then eventually beaten and crucified, on that night, he called his disciples together, and he said this to them in Matthew 26, starting in verse 31. He said, Tonight, all of you will fall away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter told him, Now listen, even if everyone else falls away because of you, I will never fall. Peter's kind of saying, I'm the rock, right? I'm steady. Well, truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. No, even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. So Jesus predicted that all of his disciples would lose faith, would disassociate with him, would fall away. Even this rock of a man, even Peter, was going to deny Jesus three times in one night. Those are the last words 
that Jesus, that we have recorded that Jesus spoke to Peter before he was crucified. Imagine those being the last words Jesus spoke to you. This is the same man that Jesus called the rock. It's a man who is a pillar of the church. And then Jesus says, now listen, you're going to deny me three times tonight before the rooster crows. Did it happen? Well, yeah, let's read that encounter together. Matthew chapter 26. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Matthew 26. Um, I'll put up some of the verses on the screen as well. Uh, Matthew 26, starting in verses 57 and 58, Jesus is being led away to trial. In Matthew 26, 57, we read this. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. And Peter was following him at a distance, right to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and was sitting with the servants to see the outcome. You skim ahead to verse 69 of Matthew 26. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl approached him, said, you were with Jesus the Galilean too. But he denied it in front of everyone. I do not know what you're talking about. Then he had gone out to the gateway and another woman saw him and told those who were there, this man was with Jesus the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. He took an oath. I swear I don't know this man. Wow. After a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, you really are one of them, since even your accent gives you away. Any of you tell that somebody's from upstate New York from their accent? It's okay, we can tell if you're from the South too. It's just one of those things, right? We can tell from your accent that you are a Galilean, that you are one of them. And then he started to curse and swear with an oath. I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken, the last words he said to him before he was crucified, going, to, going to be put on trial and then crucified. And those words were, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. That's the last thing that we read that specifically referenced Peter in Matthew's gospel. That's where it ended with Peter in Matthew's gospel. We covered the whole gospel, and that's the last thing we read about him. In, in chapter 28 of Matthew's gospel, there's references to the disciples as a group, the 11 of them, because Judas was no longer with them. But they don't talk about Peter again. So then we're going to pick up in the book of Acts... And here's this guy standing up as a leader of the church, declaring that we need to replace Judas with somebody else, and we need to do this and this. How did Peter, the guy who denied Jesus three times, go from that and crying bitterly to being up in front of the other disciples and leading the church in the book of Acts? There's this gap that is kind of a loose end, a big loose end in Matthew's gospel that I think we really have to go through. How did Peter all of a sudden overcome this grief that he had? How could a man who rejected Jesus three times be the leader of the disciples? Think about, think about that. I don't read any of the other disciples going, I don't know Jesus. Peter denied him three times in one night. How can that man be the leader of the church? Especially when you consider Jesus' words, also from Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 10 says this. 
Let me get through that, sorry. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Now, he said that before Peter ever denied him. That kind of leaves us with a problem, doesn't it? Because when I'm reading this, I'm going, okay, wait a minute. Jesus said that if you deny him, that he would deny you. And Peter denied Jesus three different times. So what do we do with that? Now, how is this guy now all of a sudden leading the apostles? So I think it's important that we tie up this loose end on Peter before we get into the book of Acts. And we are going to study the book of Acts. Lord willing, we'll start that next week. But we've got to get this bridge taken care of. So can somebody tell me who, who is believed to have written the book of Acts? Not Paul. Luke. Can you tell me another book that Luke has written? The Gospel of Luke, right? Right? Right. So let's turn to the Gospel of John, okay? Let's turn to the Gospel of John. Luke doesn't cover this event, but John does. So I want you to turn to the Gospel of John, and I want you to get to the chapter 21. Fortunately for us, John records some events that took place between the crucifixion and the book of Acts that help us tie up this loose end with Peter. Um, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples for about 40 days. And he appeared to them many times and in various ways. Um, the third time he appeared to them, he actually even ate breakfast with them, which is pretty cool. Something to chew on on that one, when you start thinking about what your resurrected body will be like, Jesus, after his resurrection, was eating. Usually that's not an image that we get um, when we think about our resurrected bodies. But let's read this account together. I'm not going to put John 21 up on the screen because we're going to cover quite a bit in John 21. It's going to be our main passage. I know, it's the book of Acts, but we're going to finish in John 21, and then we'll get to the book of Acts, uh, Lord willing, next week. So John 21, 1 through 3. This is the third time that Jesus has appeared to his disciples. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Now, Simon Peter and Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. Well, we're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat but that night they caught nothing. Now, Peter and several of the disciples were fishermen, right? They were fishing when Jesus called them. Do you remember that story? They're fishing when Jesus called them. And after the crucifixion, I think Simon, especially Peter, and after his denial, I think he lost focus. Because instead of doing what he was told to do, he goes back to what he knew before Jesus. He goes back to fishing. Now, maybe he was just disillusioned by the fact that his Savior, that the Messiah, was killed. Maybe he was so grief-ridden that he figured there's no way he could be used again after what he had done. Have you ever done something so terrible that you felt you could not be forgiven? Imagine committing your life to someone like Jesus, and then denying him three times in front of a servant, a woman, and a small crowd while he's being tried and crucified. I imagine the grief would have been very hard to deal with. 
So they go back to what they know. They go back to what they knew before. They go back to fishing. And I think if we really want to understand what happens with Peter, we need to travel back even a little further. So we started with Acts with Peter, but we had to go back to John's account. But now I think we need to go back a little further um, to when Jesus first called Peter. He was fishing. And he was not doing, that, doing very well that day either, was he? Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. And he saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon. And he asked him to put out a little from the land. And then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. <laughs> Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down our nets. Can you kind of feel the tension there? Maybe you ever, maybe you speak sarcasm. Sarcasm is my primary language. English is my second. And I can kind of picture a little sarcasm in Simon's response. Hey, if you say so, I'll do it. But you know, we're the fishermen. You're not, what do you know about fishing? You're a teacher. But if you say so, we'll do it. Fine. A little bit of friction there, I'm sure. Um, just a little bit. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me because I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Well, don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. And then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. Jesus used a miracle to get Peter's attention. He happened to be with the sons of Zebedee at the time. They happened to be on the shore. They happened to have gone out and caught fish, tried to catch fish all night and had no success. And Jesus used a miracle to get his attention. After they had fished all night, caught nothing, Jesus, who was not a fisherman, told Peter to throw his net in the water during a time of day where you would not normally catch fish. And of course, the nets filled with fish. Peter's response was, leave me for I am a sinful man. At that moment, he understood his sinfulness before a holy God and realized that he was not worthy to be used by God. Jesus' response was not, okay. It wasn't, you're right, Simon. You're, you know, you're just too filthy. You're a fisherman. I can't help you. Jesus' response was, follow me. From now on, you're going to catch men. And Peter followed. So there was the miracle of the catch of fish, the response by Peter, and a call to the mission of sharing the good news. And Peter and his partners followed Jesus. Of course, they had no idea what they were getting into, right? I mean, think about it. That, think about what took place from that day on. There's no way you can know what's going to happen. I mean, can I just say this? The day you give your life to Jesus is the best day of your life, and you have no clue what's coming. But I promise you it's awesome and it's great. And that's what they experienced. So let's go back to this third post-resurrection encounter between Jesus and the disciples. After Peter's denial, and I want you to see the parallel, this is meant to take us back to that time of that calling. 
After this, Jesus revealed himself to his disciples, John 21, verses 1 through 11, by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself this way. So Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and Zebedee's sons and two other disciples were together. I'm going fishing, says Simon. We're coming with you. They went out, got on the boat, but that night they caught nothing. You catching the parallel here? They couldn't make it more obvious. This is, this is very intentional. This is happening this way. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, he called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? Could you just picture that? I mean, there's just such a jab there that's so fun. Yeah, you don't have any fish, do you guys? And they're like, yeah, no. It was a bad night. It was a really bad night. Well, cast your net on the other side, on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So amazingly, they did. And they were unable to haul it all in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, who's the one that Jesus loved? John, right? So John says, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him for he had taken it off. He plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about 100 yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish already lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. That little detail is just, that's, yeah, that's such a cool thing. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. The net was not torn. This encounter between, we're going to continue in this story in just a minute. This encounter between Jesus and the disciples, especially between Jesus and Peter, is meant to take us back to that initial calling when Jesus said, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Let me ask you again, have you ever let somebody down and just really let somebody down terribly? What was it like the next time you saw them? It was like, oh, hey, good to see you. Isn't there like an awkwardness of, oh, yeah. Do I avoid them? Do I go apologize? What, what do I do with this situation now? It's just this, this awkwardness. that We call that the elephant in the room, right? Nobody knows what to do with. So this is the third time that Jesus has shown up with the disciples. The other two times, Peter was there as well. So here they are together, Peter, Jesus. Awkward. The third time, this whole event takes place, and that awkwardness is going to be lifted. After emphatically stating that even if all the others fell away, he would not, he then denied him, and then even stating that he would die rather than deny Jesus, he ends up denying Jesus in front of a servant girl. Now, I'm not anti-girls. In this society, a servant girl was pretty low on the totem pole as far as social clout. He denies Jesus in front of a servant girl. If you climb up the social ladder, you get women higher than the servant girl, but still not considered up at the top of the list. Can we acknowledge that about their society? I'm not saying that's the way it should be. That's the way their society was. The second time he denies with an oath, it's to a woman. 
And the third time, it's just to a random crowd that happens to be nearby that says, yeah, you've got the accent, you're one of them. And he curses and swears. Meeting up with Jesus after that must have been extremely awkward, perhaps even embarrassing. And I'm sure that there was a lot of guilt and shame that Peter also felt as he looked Jesus in the eyes for the first time. And now it's their third encounter. The purpose of the miracle in John's gospel is to connect us back to the beginning and the initial calling of the disciples. Because often when we do something wrong, the guilt that we feel, the struggles that we face, the embarrassment that we have can seem so insurmountable that we forget what we're supposed to be doing. And we perhaps even believe that God can't use us anymore. And it's very easy to withdraw back into doing things that we did before we ever knew Jesus. And I believe that's what happened with Peter. It's very easy to lose sight of what we, the church even, are called to do. It's easy for us as churches to be filled with activity and programs and projects and even forget our calling. Or worse, we can become disillusioned or distracted uh, by our work and, not, and, and just forget to do what we're supposed to be doing. I'm hoping that you're going to see in these parallels of Peter's life the parallels of our lives and of the church. Because the book of Acts and even Peter's life are about God using imperfect people to accomplish his work to build his kingdom on this earth. And that involves you and me yet today. In both instances of these miracles, Jesus told the disciples to do something that didn't make sense. And in both cases, there was a miracle that took place of them catching a bunch of fish. And when Peter first encountered Jesus at that miracle, he described himself as a sinner, right? And Jesus called him anyway. It is the grace of God that allows us to become children of God and be adopted into his family. It's the grace of God that allows us to be partners with God to do his work on this earth. It's not our merits or our accomplishment or our rugged good looks, or the fact that we have a pickup truck or a four-wheeler. It's nothing of our possession. It's nothing of our nature. It's nothing of our character or personality that merits us being chosen by God for, for his work or to be forgiven. God is pleased to call sinners to follow him. And that includes me and you. And I think we have to remember that about Simon. Simon was certainly not a perfect man, and yet God said, Jesus said, follow me, I'm going to use you. I believe that Jesus also knew that Simon Peter would betray him later on and deny him. I'm sorry, deny, let me say deny. Judas betrayed, Peter denied. I believe Jesus even knew that Peter would deny him, and still he called him a rock. Still he chose him. We need to make sure that we don't underestimate the grace of God and that we don't try to elevate our worthiness above God's grace. I'm thankful that God shows grace. So thankful. After spending time, years, beside the Messiah, Peter denies him three times. And the way that Jesus handles it is priceless. In John, back in John chapter 21, starting in verse 15. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
Yes, Lord, he said to them, you know that I love you. Well, feed my lambs, he told them. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to them, you know that I love you. Well, then shepherd my sheep, he told them. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. When Jesus told the disciples that they would all fall away, what was Peter's response? Even if everyone else, now who's everyone else in the room with him? The disciples. Even if everyone else falls away, I won't. That's pretty arrogant, frankly. Could you imagine being one of the 11 to other disciples? Right? 10, 10 at that point. Sorry, Judas is gone. Could you imagine being one of those guys? You're not winning points at this, at this rate, right? Even if all the rest fall away. In other words, what he was saying was, my commitment is greater than theirs. My love is greater than theirs. My devotion to you is far greater than them. Even if they fall away, I will not. How did Jesus phrase his first question in John 21, 15? John, Simon, excuse me, son of John, do you love me more than these? Was Jesus trying to cause dissension among the disciples? Well, of course not. He prayed for their unity. So why would he question this way? I think, to me, and maybe it's just me and my personality, there's almost like a little jab going on here. That Jesus is having a little bit of fun to help soften the pain of what Peter's going through. But also a very serious reminder of the words that Peter said. Peter said, even if they deny you, I will not. And so Jesus just starts right out with that. Simon, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. Even that's a bold statement. Even that's a bold statement. Do you really? They didn't deny me, Peter, like you did. It's kind of, to me, it's kind of the same tone as, you didn't catch any fish, did you? Just a reminder. Sometimes we have to be reminded of our words just to understand how arrogant we can be. Isn't that true? Just so we can be humbled enough to understand the reality of our situation. I think we get some of the nature and personality of God in the way that Jesus interacts with Peter, and I just I love it. It's, it's awesome. So three times Jesus gave Peter, Peter the same question. Do you love me? It might seem a bit unnecessary, and Peter even gets grieved or frustrated with it, but there's a very significant reason for it, and I believe that that's restoration. The goal of this encounter was not to embarrass Peter in front of the other disciples. The goal was not to shame Peter in a shame culture, which is very much what they had in an honor-shame culture. It was to restore Peter back to where he was called to be, the rock of the church. But I have a feeling Peter was not ready for that yet. That awkwardness of seeing the man that you swore allegiance to and denied three times on this third meeting with him is approached 
three different times with the same question. It's very intentional as a restoration. Though once was enough, Jesus wanted Peter to know that he was aware of the three denials and still loved Peter and still forgave Peter. Peter was a sinful man, but Peter was also a forgiven man. He was restored. So you may ask the question, when did Peter ask for forgiveness? Well, we don't have a recorded prayer, but we know that after the rooster crowed, what did Peter go off and do? Wept bitterly, right? Psalm 51:17 says, The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humble heart, God. I have news for you. You can pray a lot of prayers of repentance and not mean a single one of them. What God is interested in is not just the words that come out of your mouth, but the heart behind it. I believe Peter was a broken man. Peter's actions demonstrated his repentance. He was broken over what he did, and Jesus did not desire to punish him, but to restore him, to remind him that he was still loved and that his past was not going to keep him from accomplishing the work in the future that God wanted him to do. Any of you ever restore something? How many of you have, have restored something? What are some things you've restored? Furniture. furniture. Yeah. How many of us? We restored a desk. My wife and I restored an old desk that was her grandmother's furniture. And she did a chair. It was really cool. What else? A house. A house. Nice small project. Yeah. <laughs> How's that going for you? You guys are still happily married, right? Yeah, that's a test of a marriage right there. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Restore a house. Big project. Anything else? I remember restoring some moldings in an old house we lived in in Oxbow. It was all painted over with like six coats of paint. My mom wanted to strip it all down and refinish it and restore it. And I remember helping her when I was a child. That was pretty cool. But I think the favorite restoration project that I had was with my brother. He had a 66 Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah, I mean, you're like, some of you are like smiling like, yeah, I know those cars. They kind of like they have to go down the road. They like purr when they go down the road. They're really fun. Well, when he got it, it was in pretty rough shape. Like, we would sit, he would take us to school, we would sit in the back seat, and you, there were wooden shutters for floorboards, and you could watch the road go by under your feet through the wooden shutters. They would not pass inspection today, right? So we cut those out, and we put fiberglass floorboards in, and we reupholstered all the seats because they were all torn. We put in new door liners and a new headliner. We got new chrome mirrors and new chrome bumpers, new weather stripping. We painted the car. We put a rebuilt engine in it. And I helped him with this whole process. Matter of fact, before he painted it, we stripped the paint off the car because it had been painted badly before so that we had a fresh coat to take it to, to somebody to have it repainted. We did all this work on it. It looked great. He, my brother actually gave that to me as a gift. It was his car, and I helped him during high school. Would you like to see a picture of it? Right? That's Laura. I don't know who that dorky-looking guy is next to her. But yeah, that was our Volkswagen Beetle. And uh, it was a beautiful car. I went to take it to college, my first road trip with it. It caught on fire and burned to the ground. But, but you know... Um, the goal of restoration is to take something that's broken and worn and repair it back to its original condition and purpose, right? The goal was to get this car back to the point where it was 
functioning as a car and could be used as a car and didn't look like a, a bucket of rust with holes in the floor. The goal of restoration is to take something that is broken or worn and repair it back to its original condition and purpose. And that is what God did for Peter, and that is what God can do for you and me. We all fail. God is in the business of restoring people. If God was looking for an excuse to punish or wipe us out, we've provided more than ample opportunity, let's be honest, right? Yet it's the nature of God to be compassionate. When God revealed himself to Moses, he said this about himself, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. There's the big three, iniquity, rebellion, and sin. There's good news that forgiveness is available to all, no matter what we've done. Peter rejected Jesus. Maybe you have too. Grace is available to the broken and humble heart that repents. But I'm still struggling with a verse that we read earlier. The one from Matthew 10, 33. The one that said, whoever denies me before others, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. Didn't Peter deny Jesus? How could he be restored? Is it possible that he has sinned so bad that he couldn't be restored? I think it's a great reminder that you can't take one verse out of the context that it's in or in isolation and form a theology. Obviously, this was not the case for Peter. Since we know that the words of Jesus are true, and we know that Peter did deny Jesus, and yet Jesus restored Peter and even ate with him, we must come to the conclusion that the denial mentioned in Matthew chapter 10 is about those who deny Jesus, not just with their words, but with their heart and with their lives, and deny him to be the very Son of God. Those that live in defiance of him, In the context of Matthew's gospel, it was very apparent that that included the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who took him to trial and crucified him. There are times where you and I will deny God in our lives, whether it's as just apparent as what Peter did to other people, or whether it's in the way that we choose to live, we may choose to deny God. That does not mean that we are beyond forgiveness, and restoration. I believe even those that once denied Jesus as God can repent and be forgiven. And if you're in that situation, I want to encourage you not to believe the lie that you can't be forgiven and restored. Because to believe that means that your arrogance is far greater than God's grace and you're not that big. If we're willing to humble ourselves, we can be forgiven. It takes repentance and acknowledging Jesus as Lord and following him. Now, it should be obvious, though, through all of this, in this area of forgiveness and repentance and restoration, that obedience in the first place is far greater than repentance after the fact, right? Think about it. Obedience in the first place is far greater than repentance after the fact. Matter of fact, Samuel said this. Oops, sorry, wrong way. (laughs) Got to repent from that picture, right? Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Why would you bring burnt offerings and sacrifices? Well, that was to atone for your sins. (laughs) Listen, yeah, God wants us to ask for repentance for our sins, but to listen to him in the first place is even better. 
And while the grace of God is available to all who repent, it's not something we should take for granted, right? Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6, right? What should we say? Should we continue to sin so grace can multiply? I mean, if God's grace is so often, shouldn't I just keep messing up so I can experience his grace, right? Uh, No, absolutely not, Paul says. How can we who die to sin live in it? I think the story of Peter is a story for every one of us. If you left Peter at the end of Matthew's gospel, you would think about this poor guy who went off crying and you'd never hear from him again. If you picked up with Peter in the book of Acts and didn't know the story from Matthew, you'd think, wow, look at this great spiritual man. But in between there, there's this process of a a guy who, who failed miserably, his savior, who is now exalted to the position of head of the apostles and the church. And that process of restoration is not just for Peter. It's something that's available for all of us. Because we all sin. I love 1 John um, as a book. Uh, It's a fantastic book. You should read it if you haven't. Study it. Verses 8 through 10 create like a, I call it the Oreo. You've got the cookie, the cream filling, and the cookie. There's like three things in these verses here. And the cream filling is that really sweet part. It says, uh, listen, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In that Oreo sandwich of verses, the cream filling is that grace of God. Because while all of us do sin, there's forgiveness and restoration for those who, like Peter, have a humble and broken heart. Sometimes we can feel like our sin is so great that God would not want to forgive us. I have not found that to be true nor biblical. Sometimes people feel like they have to make amends for their sins before they can even go to God. I messed up, so i got to make this right first so I can go back to God. It doesn't work that way. It's pretty arrogant, really. Like, your good works are going to make God accept you. It's never been what it's been about. It's about His grace. Let's not cheapen grace And let's not cheapen God's love like that. Let's be willing to just accept it the way it is. So let's wrap up this idea of restoration. Peter was obviously embarrassed, guilty, uncertain about what he should do with his future. He goes back to fishing. Jesus meets him where he is at the water, reminds him of his original calling, by going back to the fishing illustration, restores him three times, just like he denied him, just like Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus restores Peter three times. And then, and in that, Jesus reminds Peter of his calling. Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, take care of my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. His calling comes back over and over and over again. Peter was called while fishing, and his calling was restored while fishing, and Peter reminded him and the other disciples that they were not to go back to life before him. They were not to go back to fishing the way that they knew it, but they were to go back to fishing for men, women, and children. They were to go back to sharing the good news of the kingdom of God, which is exactly what the book of Acts is about. It's about these men, including Peter, taking the kingdom of God to the world around them. That's the book of Acts. 
Peter was not just forgiven, he was reminded that he still had a mission to accomplish. He was still useful for the kingdom of God. And what took place was to help teach Peter not to rely on his own strength, but on the strength of God. Peter stood before Jesus and said, listen, I will not deny you. I'm strong enough. And Jesus said, no, you're not. What you won't find in the book of Acts is Peter saying what he will or won't do. You find a new man in the book of Acts after this restoration. You find a man who's willing to humble himself and submit to the spirit of God and the leadership of God and to walk out in the strength of God. Not the same Peter who cut off the ear of the servant. Not the same Peter who, who just dashed out onto the water on his own. Not the same Peter who denied Jesus and said he wouldn't. But a Peter who's willing to humble himself before God. This is the kind of person that God needs not only to lead his church, but to be his church. This is you, and this is me. This is what we are called to. Peter was a sinful man who followed Jesus, made a lot of mistakes, fell asleep when Jesus needed him most, denied him three times, but then led the church to accomplish the mission of taking the good news of forgiveness and acceptance through Jesus to the ends of the earth. And he's an example to you and me. We're all sinful. We all fail. We can all be restored. And God has a mission for each one of us to join him on, to share the good news of forgiveness and restoration to the world around us. And as we study the book of Acts together in the weeks and months and probably years to come, I pray that you'll come to a greater understanding of your calling and mission and my calling and mission that God will renew the calling of his church, his people, to share the grace of God with the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you choose to show grace and forgiveness to those of us who are willing to repent. Father, I'll be the first to admit that there is an arrogance that wants me to believe that I can do things on my own. And there's an arrogance and a pride that wants me not to admit when I'm wrong. But I thank you for your willingness to pursue me and to meet me where I am, to remind me of who you are, not to rub in my face that I'm a sinful man, but to offer restoration and forgiveness and mission and purpose. Father, I pray that as we continue to study your word, that we would also rely upon your spirit to teach us but also to live out the actions that apostles, that disciples are meant to live out. That we wouldn't just be reading in the months ahead about the acts of the apostles, but that we would also be forming the actions of the church today. And that your mission and your work would be accomplished through us. So forgive us, restore us, and then use us, we pray. Amen.